seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After deliberating for about two and a half hours, 33-year-old Josef Pushka was found guilty of murder, his story not believed by the jury. Judge Justice Tony Hunt, he did say he was glad that they didn't waste any more of their valuable time on Pushka's farcical story. From the team that brought you the trial of Lucy Letby, this is the trial, Ashley Murphy. So today we're focusing the episode on, generally, since the murder of Ashlyn Murphy and the conviction of Joseph Pushka, just how safe are women on the streets of Ireland and beyond? We're going to focus today on whether more can be done to keep women safer on our streets. Yeah, Caroline, I think when Ashley Murphy was murdered, a lot of people here in Ireland felt, let this be a watershed, let this be the last time, never again. And I think people feel that something did change when Ashley Murphy was killed in January of last year, that it was a time for change in Ireland. And certainly a lot of campaigners here feel that, and they're hopeful that that will be the case here. Welcome to episode 11, A Turning Point. Right, so Nicola, we're back today. Obviously this week we're going to be doing a few episodes ahead of the sentencing of Joseph Pushka, which is going to be taking place on Friday. And in fact, ahead of that sentencing that's happening, we think Friday morning, we are going to be talking to a legal expert about what to expect in that hearing and what we might witness in the court because... We're thinking, Nicola, there'll be victim impact statements from the family. And then Tony Hunt, the judge, will sentence Joseph Pushka. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the week, aren't we? Yes, we are indeed. And that sentencing hearing coming very quickly after the conviction last week, Caroline. You know, I haven't seen a sentencing hearing coming that quickly in a long time. In terms of today, what we've, what we've been trying to do behind the scenes since last week, since the conviction of Joseph Pushka, is talk to 
someone who wanted to talk to us about the general issue of women's safety. There's so much been written now about both at the time and then subsequently to Ashlyn's murder about that this was a watershed moment. This had to be a watershed moment in Ireland and beyond around women and safety. You know, Ashlyn's murder, she's one of a number of women going about their business, you know, just living their life who have been attacked randomly by strangers on the streets. Of course, we know, Nicola, that the vast majority of violence that happens against women happens in their own homes. It's often perpetrated by somebody that that they know. And this particular case, in Ashlyn's case, of course, it was a stranger attack, which is unusual, but certainly seems there's a feeling that it's growing and women feel unsafe on the streets. That's the feedback we're getting. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Caroline. I think Ashleen's murder tapped into a feeling that so many women and girls are socialized to feel that the risk of male violence is everywhere. There's nowhere that's safe. Um, when you think of it, I mean, most women are killed by people they know. I think the stat here in Ireland is 87% of women who are killed are killed by their partners and just 13% uh, died the way Ashleen did. But still, it that doesn't um, assuage the fear, if you like. There, there is a real fear that women are not safe going about their daily business, just doing whatever in broad daylight, just like Ashleen was that day uh, in January last year. Yeah, and of course it it feeds into a wider context, doesn't it, of violence against women in the UK. Numerous women who've been attacked in different circumstances, whether it be Sarah Everard or Sabina Nessa. At the time of, uh, and you alluded to it last week, Nicola, of of Ashton's murder, a, a hashtag started to trend, which was she was just going for a run. And that again fed into other hashtags. She was just getting in a taxi. She was just going home. She was just leaving work around sort of women just doing their normal things. But that got a little bit of pushback, didn't it, from groups who said we've got to be really, really careful that we never, ever slip into victim blaming. Yeah, that's right, Caroline. Victim blaming isn't where we want to go at all. And it really doesn't matter what a woman or a girl is doing. It doesn't matter if she's out, you know, at four o'clock in the morning. It doesn't matter if she's drunk. It doesn't matter if she's on her way home from a nightclub. Violence against women is unacceptable. And that's the message that we have to get out there. We've been trying, haven't we, for a few days to speak to uh, someone to talk to us a bit more about this. And we're really, really pleased that Mary McDermott has been able to come in and chat to us. I mean, I don't know, I think her theme is, and we'll find out now, is everyone sit down in a room and talk honestly about what's going on here. Yeah, she says that. And she also says that it's about our young people and educating our young people, girls and boys, about the right way to proceed. Thanks, Mary, for coming in and uh, and for chatting to us today. Well, good morning. Um, My name is Mary McDermott and I'm the CEO of Safe Ireland. We are advocates and work strongly to change structures in society. We're also a national network of refuges and support services. 
Our members are at frontline in dealing with the, the most extreme end on a daily basis of what it means to live as a woman in Ireland or indeed anywhere and to have to endure the relentless assaults that happen on women in the private and public space. I mean, it's in one of your reports, Mary, recently that you referred to violence against women as an epidemic. I wonder whether you could expand on why you think that. Well, the term uh, epidemic actually comes from uh, Leo Varadkar. And of course, that has become a trope in public discourse. So we speak about that all the time. Um, the scale is just enormous. And I could tell you from the point of view of short client services, they are one ragged. They are, are without space to provide safety for women. They are without resources to really support women and their children on a journey to freedom out of abuse. And so there is a real need for a systemic approach to this. We cannot continue to deal with it on a piecemeal or ad hoc basis. And indeed, Ireland actually have acted to begin the creation of a new system that will respond to domestic violence systematically. We're creating a new agency in 2024, which is very welcome. But I'm afraid there's an entire array of problems that need to be solved that are not reducible to the new agency. What, what is it you're calling for? What is it you want to see? What would make a difference? Because I, one of the things I think we need to highlight, Mary, and you may disagree, but it's worth the conversation, is would any of the things that you're advocating for have made a difference to Ashlyn? Well, that's an interesting question, Caroline. So from the point of view of Safe Ireland, obviously, you know, the main body of our work is frontline response. So you're you're talking about protection and intervention at the point of crisis. But Safe Ireland's work is also advocacy and it is about prevention and understanding crucially, 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 understanding the nature of domestic violence and what it really is about. Um, And I'm afraid Ashling Murphy's murder brings up so many of the issues that it's why it caused so much pain and anger. You can see that that Ashling, if when you look at Ashling and her aggrieved and grieving family. You look at Ashling and Ashling, let me put it this way, we have a tendency to victim blame when we face horror. So rather than look at the bully, we will look sideways and say, usually in the case of women, we'll say, what was she doing? Where was she? What was she wearing? You know, was she drunk? Was she blah, blah, blah. Mm. In the case of Ashling Murphy, you there isn't a thing. She is a wonderful, young, bright, vibrant woman active part of our community. So there's a whole set of things there. Actually, they, they they cover other prejudices we have around class and race and around work and achievement and so on. But that isn't the issue here. The issue here is that when we look at Ashling, we could not blame the victim. And if I might say to the audience straight out, that goes to us, not to Ashling, nor indeed to uh, Puska. This goes to the fact that actually we refuse to look at the bully, we look away. And in the case of Ashling Murphy, we are forced to look straight at the horror. Ashling was randomly attacked. So it isn't anything she did, which means we have to look at the systemic nature of violence against women and really understand its nature and its dynamics if we want to respond to it. And your point is that it's really never anything a woman has done. So we should never blame the victim, never blame the woman. 
Yeah, that's it. That's it in a nutshell, Caroline. And even in, in terms of thinking about, you know, the, the comments, there's Ashley going about her legitimate business and she was murdered savagely, irrationally almost. And then you begin to realise that actually any woman knows they cannot go safely about their business. Part of our going about our business means we have to have our lights on all the time as to where we are who's behind us, who's in front of us. We have to live with constant environment and culture of being gamed. And that is very, very difficult. From the point of view of Safe Ireland, I suppose we look at, you know, the large scale system and it is a patriarchy and, and this is language that people also don't want to look at in the same way as we often shy away looking at causes of, for example, poverty. If we're looking at causes of the death of women on this scale, on the abuse of children at such a global scale, you have to have an analysis that understands this is a large system. And so when you look at the case of Ashling Murphy, you have to sit down and say, you cannot blame that instance. This is a system and perpetrators uh, gain from it. And indeed, the publication of the Grievio report yesterday makes very clear that in our general policing practice and indeed in the courts, and this goes to the judiciary primarily, there is an inability at some level to understand the nature of this problem. It is reducible all the time. They reduce it to poor personal choice. This is not the case. Domestic violence is a large scale social problem and we need a large scale social policy and practice response. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine. And this is the price of paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow the price of paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How rare is it that this kind of thing happens in Ireland, Mary, that mm-hmm. someone is just randomly attacked and murdered like this? A woman is... First of all, 12 women were murdered in 2022. To date, there's eight women have been murdered. And they are often murdered, as we know, by partners, ex-partners and so on. Rape also occurs in this context. But it is part of the bigger system where women are seen as essentially prey. And again, I go back to the metaphor of gaming. And the, the horrible truth is, if we really want to address this problem, and this goes to boys and to girls and to men and women, None of us are benefiting from this and many men are absolutely just aggrieved with this and full of sense of helplessness. Bottom line is, nonetheless, we teach boys to game and we teach girls to be game. And like actively as part of what it means to be a male or a female, these are absolutely appalling roles to put either in. And and we have to sit down and really, really think about that seriously, about what that means for our lives. And from the point of view of Safe Ireland, we work in social policy all the time and we're saying, 
domestic violence, domestic sexual and gender-based violence is a keystone social issue. If you put the right resources into this, I won't say you'll remove other stuff or other problems, but you will go right to the heart of mental health, addictions, family homelessness, poverty, unemployment, criminality, antisocial behaviour, child protection issues. The list goes on again and again. All you will see that domestic violence, unhappy, oppressive, violent, coercive homes and relationships in homes create relentless social problems for us. You know, we are hopeful that we can do this because people are, again and again, it's our experience in Safe Ireland, anybody we speak to, they they immediately say, yes, this is a huge problem. And all they want to know is how can we fix this? What do we need to do? What we need is a coherent infrastructure where anyone in trouble can reach out and get the appropriate help they need, including accommodation pathways, including an intelligent and informed judiciary and court services and policing, including social workers and welfare who know exactly what the problem is and can intervene and not further punish the victim. You did mention there, Mary, this report that it came out actually just yesterday, uh, and it's from the Council of Europe, and it does it doesn't speak highly of the way Ireland deals with violence against women. And it's it's interesting, the timing of this happening, coming out just now. And it's based on a five-day visit that these experts, group of experts, carried out in Ireland uh, to look at, you know, all sorts of, of the way that the country deals with violence against women. It, it is, it goes to what you're saying. It's scathing about the problems Yes, yes, it is. But there are two things I would say. First of all, the Grievio report, which is the first time Ireland has been evaluated as a whole country in relation to our provisions to protect violence and to eradicate violence against women under the Istanbul Convention. So, yeah, that's this report, isn't it? The yeah. Grievio one. Yeah. I'm really pleased that this came out. And it is, as you say, Caroline, timely. Um, there are two things I'd say. First of all, you know, considerable changes have been made in Ireland within the last three years. COVID really, really triggered a mass awareness. And I have to say government, politicians, the administration, public and private parties, everyone has engaged in this. So good things are happening. I really don't want to go to the hypercritical position here in that regard. A new agency is being established and there is hope for this. Data is one of the issues that has come has come up in the Grievio report that there isn't enough data. Now, data is, to a certain extent, a completely boring topic until you realise that no high-level national resources have been put into naming this problem accurately and saying how often, where does it happen and so on. By the same token, through our courts, you have the bizarre practice where Therapeutic notes from a victim may be brought into the process of uh, of the courts. So that's you have on the one hand the erasure of data, and on the other hand the the you know the misuse we would say of certain forms of therapeutic data, which further paralyzes women. So they, women then become afraid to speak in therapy, and in more more seriously or as serious, therapists become increasingly anxious that their material will be drawn into litigation in various ways. So it's very, very complex. So the Grievio report really is smart in how it assesses what's happening. It, it welcomes the changes, the structural changes, which we also welcome in the creation of a new agency and so on. But again and again and again, we need policy closely linked with practice and we need a coherent and absolutely active and intelligent engagement around 
this issue of violence against women. Just to go back to something that you said there, Mary, you said we teach boys to game and we teach girls to be gamed. Can you explain what you mean by that? So the metaphor of game really means when you see how we raise boys and girls, you can see how we raise them to view their own bodies, the priority of their own bodies, their fitness, their health, their strength, their ability. We actively encourage boys to be able to defend themselves if they need to do so. We teach them how to work in teams, to recognise and be quite opportunistic around hierarchy, um, how to tackle and how to fight, how to hunt. That is to game. So they understand the game. And it's one of the markers, you'll see it often in popular culture, where you can see that it's like an ambience where every environment is a game. And by the same token, then, we have girls who are taught to be game. So we are taught to make sure that we are not physically very strong. That's changing, I'm glad to say. We often don't know how to work in strategic way in teams, in in that way. Again, I'm hoping that that's changing. So there's a way in which we are taught to be game as opposed to game. And all of the skills, we actively teach boys those skills. And we actively say, if you demonstrate those as a female, you will be regarded as unfeminine. You will be told you're unattractive. And of course, the primary tool of that sort of misogyny is ridicule. Do we raise our daughters now to not be strong, vibrant humans with a view? I don't know. I've got an 18-year-old and I've not taught her to be anything other than, I'd hope, strong and vocal in defending her rights to say and do what she pleases. Yeah. So, of course, the first thing I'm not doing here is not blaming parents. We're not going down that depressing route where... you. You have to teach your daughter to be Wonder Woman. That is not where I'm going here. This is really about the relative position of boys and girls in any given position. So, of course, we are teaching girls to to be strong and speak out and physically strong. And more and more of that is coming forward. And indeed, to be able to defend themselves physically. But uh, what I would say to you then is what you need to do then is look in contrast the relative and parallel culture for males. So you'll see that that also has been amped up. Mm. So it's a relative position uh, between males and females. It was interesting what you said earlier about the way women feel. I don't often walk to my car, which I park about a mile from the building, when it's the lights gone without having a key in my hand and my husband on the end of the phone. I'm a lecturer at the University of Salford. My students do exactly the same thing as they're walking to the bus and they're walking to the car. And that's not because Salford is unsafe. They would be doing the same if they were in Hampshire or Buckinghamshire or or Dublin. You know, and it, that is the way we behave. Yes. So if you could just take a minute to unpack that, Carolyn, what that really means then is that most women feel unsafe most of the time in public. From the point of view of Safe Ireland, we're making the point that many, many, many homes are equally unsafe. I remember being in a public environment once and saying, no one should have to live in an oppressive home. And the room was filled with middle class, very well-educated scholars and uh, academics and um, administrators, civil servants and some politicians. And there was a kind of a silence in the room. And I said, look, I I think we really, really have to look at some very basic stuff here. There's a kind of a fatalism and a fear in the very at the very heart of us, where we actually have resigned ourselves to the idea of you've made your bed, you can lie in it. That it is okay 
or that you have to endure in a relationship that is actually fundamentally unequal. You do not have to live in an oppressive home. Can you imagine that? That would mean that we insist of our politicians and of our administration that we have infrastructures that mean when things go really badly that we can get out, that we can go to a safe accommodation and be supported on that route out, that we can go to social protection and have the support we need to get from A to B, that we will be supported, particularly where women have children with them, that they can stay in their employment, that children can stay in their school and maintain their friendships, that you can stay in education. This is the system we need to create to stop this nonsense. In terms of a random act of utter senseless violence, I can't think of another one, not that you need to compare, but it does mean we're talking about women and women's safety and what we need to do about it. And that's something that's, you know, somewhere we can make progress, you might think. I think we can only make progress if we learn to speak honestly with each other. And that means men and women. It means civil servants, activists and frontline providers and the NGO sector all sitting down. And we really just need to sit down and start again to a certain extent, find new language fit for the 21st century, because the language that we have for analysing this problem, I think, relies very much on probably language from the 1970s. And I am relentlessly hopeful that we can do that. And also to begin to really as a matter of practice, in particular for women, to walk straight away from any self-blame, walk straight away from shame. And particularly middle and upper class women are shamed by this if they have it in their lives and it stays secret. So we want to say, stay away from the stigma, stay away from the silence and the shame. Start to name it. We can do something about this. We really can. Yeah, I mean, Nicola, that was really interesting, wasn't it, from Mary? I mean, so wide ranging. But the key for me in all of that, yeah, we talk about strategy and we talk about policy and we talk about, you know, new agencies. The key for me in what she said was we need to sit down in a room and be really honest about the situation that there is too much victim blaming, that women, whatever they're doing, wherever they are and wherever they're going, should not feel unsafe on the streets or in their homes. And if they do, stuff needs to happen that means that they are protected. Yeah, she was very vocal about that, wasn't she, Caroline? And I've seen Mm. that um, a number of women's groups here in Ireland have come out and called on male leaders across all spectrums of society, politics, education, be it whatever, to give example to young men and to lead them on these issues in how they should behave. And of course, at the time of of Ashlyn's murder, the then Prime Minister, now he said at the time that he wanted the nation to be united in revulsion, united in solidarity. And he even described it as an epidemic of violence against women. And what Mary and her campaign and her group are doing, and other campaigners too, is calling on them to say enough words. We need to, and I think she is hopeful. She says action has now been taken. There are, there are inroads into making this better, but she wants more. 
Yeah, she does. And I think at that time that Micheál Martin was speaking, just right after the death of Ashin, the murder of Ashin, he said that the government will be producing a national strategy for zero tolerance for violence against women. And he said that it was, you know, we have to do everything we possibly can to protect women and make women feel safe. And I think Mary was hopeful that some agencies have now been put in place that are coming into effect. They're not operating now, but I think she mentioned one was planned for 2024. And she kept going back to the role that education has to play in this. Yeah, absolutely right. We're looking ahead now to Friday's sentencing. We'll talk a bit more on Thursday, Nicola. We've got an extra episode on Thursday where we'll talk a little bit more about what's going to happen at that sentencing. And it is a little bit different to the way UK sentencing is carried out. So it's well worth checking out what happens in in an Irish court on the sentencing. But basically, you know, without wanting to go into it too much. The judge has very little power now in this in this case, Nicola, doesn't he? Yeah, so the crime of murder in Ireland carries a mandatory life sentence and that's what Joseph Pushka will be handed down on Friday. Now, the life sentence, I suppose, where the, the quirk in it is, is that not all of that life sentence will be served in custody and that's up to the gift of the parole board at what stage a person comes out of custody. Now, at the moment, a prisoner, a murderer can come up for parole from anything from 12 years on. It used to be seven years here in Ireland, but it's changed now to 12 years. So after Joseph Pushka has served 12 years, technically he would come before the parole board, but it's highly unlikely that any parole would be considered for him at that point. And I suppose one of the key things about it is that a murderer has to express remorse for their crime. And indeed admit that they've done it in the first place, which of course that's not happened in Joseph Pushka's case. Okay, so that's it for episode 11. We'll be back, as we said on Thursday, with an extra episode to talk you through this the legal process that we'll be watching in Dublin on Friday. See you then. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.